New Jersey, 1908. There was a guy named Tom who was a uh, concrete business owner who had an idea, crazy idea. His idea was that what everyone in the country needs is a concrete house. He loved concrete. He, he thought, what could be a better material for a house than concrete? It's strong, it's durable, it's fireproof, it's easy to clean, and it's affordable. Who wouldn't want that, right? So he has this idea, he decides, I'm going to make all of these large molds that we can use, and we'll basically put houses together like a jigsaw puzzle. He even thinks, wow, we could even make tubs and sinks, even the tables and chairs in the kitchen, all out of concrete. Affordable housing for all Americans, perhaps even the world. The problem was, as he did some work on this, he realized that it was going to take, at minimum, for just this small 1,500, 1,600-square-foot house, 2,300 molds. And that just the molds alone to build the first house was going to cost for what is the equivalent now of four and a half million dollars. The guy manages to build 11 houses before his business goes bankrupt. He becomes the butt of jokes in the papers in New Jersey. They draw editorial cartoons of elephants trying to rearrange the furniture in houses and struggling to do so. And that was after this guy, Tom, had this brilliant idea that had been a colossal failure a few years earlier where he had spent the equivalent of $50 million of today's money to try to figure out how to separate iron ore by breaking up the rock in this big machine between the rock and the iron and then having this huge electromagnet suck the iron over into another bin. Never worked. He spent a ton of money on it, lost his shirt, but he went on anyway. Tom had one crazy idea after the other throughout his life. In fact, Tom applied for 2,332 patents from the patent office in the United States for things like an electromagnetic device that he could use or people could use to talk to their dead relatives. For some reason, no one ever called. He also had this idea for an expensive talking doll, which looks like it was possessed. And it sounded like it as well. When this thing would actually start talking, it had this loud, high-pitched screech that would send kids running, according to the newspapers at that time. At one point... He was asked by a, a, some, a member of the press how it felt to be such a failure. And Tom's response was, I haven't failed. I've just found 10,000 reasons that don't work. Tom was also known for creating a telephone that could actually be used to call people, living people, that is. He created a phonograph to listen to music, a projector to turn still images into motion pictures. And he created, after 1,000 failed attempts... The first light bulb that worked. And his concrete, he actually ended up using it, his concrete business, to build Yankee Stadium and the Panama Canal. He became known as America's greatest inventor, and his name was Thomas Edison. Many people struggle with the idea of failure. So their crazy ideas stay just that, ideas. But then there are those who love their creation so much that they will risk everything in order to make it work. Take Henry Ford, for example. Henry Ford went broke five times trying to pursue the crazy idea of a machine that would transport people on a highway. Imagine that. And then there was this guy who had a crazy idea for a vacuum cleaner with no bag. 
After 5,126 failed attempts, the 5,127th prototype actually worked, and he became rich. Then there was the guy of these, there's these two guys back in the 1970s, both named Steve, who had this crazy idea to put together something called a personal computer made out of Atari video game parts. And so they come up with this device. They think, well, this would be a great thing to have in a home to use to do tasks with. And so they go to the Atari Corporation. They go to the corporate office with this crazy idea. And the executives at Atari laugh at these two young guys, tell them, why don't you go home, actually go get an education, go back to school, and maybe you can come up with a good idea. They go to Hewlett-Packard, and hear the exact same thing. So they decide to go home, and in their garage, they create the first Macintosh. And they found Apple Computer Incorporated. And my favorite dumb idea, this one was just from a few years ago. A 15-year-old decided after his grandfather died of pancreatic cancer that he would create a way to diagnose more quickly pancreatic cancer when it arrives and to do so more cheaply. And so he creates this idea that he thinks was going to work. He goes to all these research labs all over the United States trying to pitch his idea. He goes to 199 research labs and they all laugh at him, turning him away, see him as this crazy young kid with these crazy ideas and they say, why don't you go get a college education then we'll talk to you later. But he keeps trying. And the 200th research lab he goes to happens to be Johns Hopkins University. And they take the time to listen to this kid, and they're amazed. His test today is 100 times better and 26,000 times cheaper than the best thing that the scientists and pharmaceutical companies had come up with to that point, and it's being used to save lives. The common denominator of all these stories is this. Someone had a love and a passion for an idea, and they refused to take no for an answer, even when it seemed like it would be an abysmal failure. Sounds a lot like God, actually, doesn't it? I mean, think about it. Thousands of years ago, God had this crazy idea. As he was creating the universe and the earth that we live on today, as he was creating life on this planet, he decided, what would it look like if I actually created beings with intelligence, beings that could actually receive my love, and it would have the opportunity, if they chose to, to give me love and return. That was God's crazy idea. And as we read this book that he left us, this love story, we come to find out, for much of it, that it seemed to the world like the biggest failure in all of human history. Genesis chapter 2, God creates Adam and Eve, gives them this beautiful place to live in and says, I'm only going to ask you to not, you can do whatever you want, just don't make this one choice, don't eat of the fruit of that tree. And of course, that's the choice they make. And in that moment, they reject God. You fast forward through that first book of the Bible, Genesis, to chapter 6. You find the story of a guy named Noah. God comes to Noah and says, you know what? My heart is grieved that I ever even made humanity. I'm going to start all over. I'm pushing the reset button on this whole project. I'm going to take you, Noah, and your family. I'm going to stick you on a boat, wipe, flood the earth, and start over with you. Seemed like a great idea, right? Till just a few years later, 
the earth was back in the same place it was before. Then we go to Genesis chapter 12. And a guy named Abram is walking the earth. And God has a different idea. God goes to Abram and says, Abram, I, I know that you are one who loves me. Do, would, do you trust me? Yes, God, you know I trust you. Okay, I want you to go to a land that I'm going to show you, and I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make you into a great nation. I know you don't have any kids now, but I'm going to give you more descendants than the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore. And Abram follows, and God blesses him and his descendants. And we think, finally, God has the answer. And then by the time we get to the end of Genesis, we find that that whole thing has not worked either. God's people, these chosen people, have chosen once again, to reject God and say, no thanks. So they're in these chosen people, these Israelites are in slavery in Egypt, and it looks like God has abandoned them, but he hasn't because God shows up, he performs all these miracles, he uses Moses to deliver these million-plus people out of Egypt into this promised land, and as they go out, God says to all these people, I will give you my presence, I won't leave you, I will be... Present as a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. You'll never leave my side and I'll never leave you. God says, I will give you my promises. I will pour out blessings on you. And he says, I will give you my law. I'll give you my expectations so that you can flourish on this earth all the days of your life. And as we read a few pages later in that book of the Bible, we find out once again, God's people say, no thanks. Then God comes up with another idea. Maybe, maybe I just need to send prophets among them to share my heart, to, to, to remind them of how much I love them. And so all these prophets come, and they warn of what's going to happen if they don't turn, pleading with them, please turn back to God. God loves you. God has a plan for your life. God wants you to flourish. No thanks, God. It seemed to be one failure after another throughout the Old Testament. But God was relentless. He had no intention on giving up on us or his crazy idea. You know, some people see the story of Christmas as God's Hail Mary. It's his last-ditch, desperate, final attempt to save us, save us after the whole Adam and Eve thing didn't work out and the Noah and Abraham and all these other things that God had done throughout history. What we fail to see if we're not reading carefully the story of Scripture is that Christ was never God's plan B or his plan E or F or whatever it was by that point. You have to realize this was God's plan all along. God is all-knowing. No one's choices have ever surprised God, even yours. Even before Adam and Eve were created, God knew the choices that they would make. And he had this ultimate plan in mind that culminated in a manger that very first Christmas. God wanted us to see, though, throughout the story of the Old Testament, how as he continued to chase after us and pursue us, that we continue to say, no. No, thank you. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, God's, God's words to Adam and Eve was that we, we see, even as God is driving Adam and Eve out of the garden, we see hints of God's ultimate plan in that story. 
We see it scattered all through the Psalms and even through the stories of the prophets as they pour out their hearts through God. God was giving hints of this ultimate plan he had that would culminate that first Christmas. God would tell through the the psalmists and the prophets about a savior, a, a deliverer who would come. One who would never fall prey to sin as every other human had. One who wouldn't keep us from sinning, but instead save us in our sin. Prophets like Isaiah and Hosea and Micah talk in detail about this plan centuries beforehand, even down to the little details of the the town for which this Savior would be born. Isaiah said that this, this deliverer, this Savior would come to rule, but not in the way that many of the others had. He wouldn't come as a commander, taking over and forcing people to follow him, but as a servant, loving us tenderly as God had always done. Yet Simeon prophesies when this Savior is born that this one born that first Christmas would cause the rising and falling of many in Israel and reveal the true hearts of people toward God. 700 years before that first Christmas, God's people are rebelling against God, saying no to him once again. The prophets are warning them, Turn back to God. God's saying, repent, or you'll become slaves to the Babylonians. And in that moment, as this tug of war is happening between God and humanity, at that time, God spoke through Isaiah to tell them this. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. All right, then, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son And we'll call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Right in the middle of this story, as the prophet Isaiah is warning them of what's what's going to happen if they don't turn, God once again is interjecting these seeds of hope into their future. Isaiah is saying, a day is coming when God's going to make this whole crazy idea of his actually work. Despite our failures, despite all the ways over and over again we've rejected him, God will come near. He will actually be with us. It would be God in the flesh coming to earth as a baby, born of a humble virgin, one who would limit himself to depend on oxygen and food and sleep. He'd subject himself to fatigue and to to rejection and to to ridicule, all to tell us that God's not done with us, that he is crazy in love with us. He chooses to suffer a painful human death, just as God said would happen centuries before in Isaiah and in the book of Psalms, to, to pay for the penalty of sin in our lives and give each one of us the ability to know him and his love. That, guys, is the message of Christmas. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 say this very clearly. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. 
You know, today, you and I can armchair quarterback God in this crazy idea he had. We can look at this crazy story and this attempt that he had to reach us and say, come on, God, really, that's your best plan. That's the best idea you had. Surely, you would have had a better idea than that. But we must never forget that it is all inspired by love. God's love for you. There's a pastor in uh, L.A. His, uh, at a church called Mosaic. His name is Owen McManus. And he recently said this. This really struck me. He said, this is the story of God. He pursues you with his love. Even if you reject his love, he pursues you ever still. If the message that God wants to get across to us is just about getting our beliefs right, then he didn't need to come himself. If God's entire intent was to clarify right from wrong, no personal visitation was necessary. If the ultimate end was simply to overwhelm us with the miraculous so that we would finally believe, then even God taking on flesh and blood and walking among us was far from necessary. There's only one reason, he said, for God to come himself. Because on issues of love, you just can't have someone else stand in for you. This Christmas Eve night, I'm sure you've got a lot on your mind. You're probably thinking about all the things that will happen tomorrow. For some of you, probably all the things that will be happening tonight as soon as you're done here. But if there's nothing else that you remember from our time here tonight, I hope you remember this. God loves you so intensely that he came near. He didn't come near to judge you in me. He didn't come near to get us to believe in a religion. He came because he had this crazy idea that some of us might want more out of life than what this broken world has to offer. Our need for love, for intimacy, for meaning and destiny all point to the existence of God and our need to know him, to receive his love. I have a confession to make. As a kid... I used to love to listen every day to a guy by the name of Paul Harvey on the radio. How many of you even know who Paul Harvey was? Okay, a few of you. How many of you don't even know who this guy is? Raise your hands. Okay, first service, so all these hands went up. I'm like, okay, you're making me feel really old right now. So thank you guys for helping me out. But all all my friends back in those days were listening to Michael Jackson and Cool and the Gang and Duran Duran and Bon Jovi. I like to listen to the rest of the story. And there's one story that I actually still remember to this day that he told. And it was the story of the man and the birds. Paul Harvey told this story about a man who was asked by his wife on Christmas Eve night to go with her and the kids to church for Christmas Eve service. But this guy was an atheist, and he had no desire to show up and pretend to be a Christian one more Christmas Eve night. He said, honey, I feel like I'd be a hypocrite if I show up there again. I don't swallow this whole idea of God, and I certainly don't swallow this idea of God coming to earth as a human being. That makes no sense to me. Not at all. 
So the family takes off. He stays at home. He's in his living room reading the newspaper, watching snow. A snowstorm is actually blowing in to town at that, at that time. And while he's reading his newspaper, he hears this loud thud on his living room window. He's like, what was that? He goes back to reading, and he hears a second thud on the window. He's like, okay. In his mind, he's thinking, there's some neighborhood kids that are throwing snowballs at the house again. So he goes outside, storms outside, trying to find the kids. And he finds this bunch of birds that are huddled around the side of his house in this now good bit of snow. They were actually trying to go in through his window, thinking that it was an opening to be able to get into the warmth of his house. In that moment, he realizes that these birds are going to die in the cold unless they get into some place where they can be warm and safe. And so he remembers that he has a barn right next to the house where he keeps his pony for his young girl. And so he decides, I'm just going to find a way to shoo those birds into the barn, and certainly then they'll be fine. They'll, They'll be okay, and I'll let them out tomorrow morning. But no matter what he does, he can't get them to go in. Every time this man gets close to the birds, they flee in fear and scatter. He keeps thinking, surely I can figure this out. I'm an engineer by trade. Surely I can figure this out. And so he goes back into his house. He finds some bread. He decides to make a bread crumb trail from the living room window all the way to the front door of the barn. Surely now they'll follow. But every time he tries to get close to get them, to encourage them to eat the bread, they scatter. And he gets so frustrated. He's like, what is wrong with these stupid birds? How come they don't understand this, what I'm trying to do for them? And then he, in this moment of desperation, he just thinks, if I could just speak their language for just a minute, if I could just mingle with them, if I could just become one of them for just a moment, then they'd listen to me and they'd realize that I'm trying to help them. And then it dawns on him. That's what God did. It's in that moment that he hears the church bells ringing where his wife is, and the church bells are ringing the tune, O come, all ye faithful. And he drops to his knees in the snow. You know, a lot of people in this world have had some real crazy ideas. Some of them have actually panned out. A lot of them haven't. Thank goodness psychophone doesn't actually work. But perhaps the craziest idea of all was the idea that God had thousands of years ago. That in the vastness of this universe, he would create this little blue ball. He'd create life on it, life with intelligence, life with the ability to receive his love, and if they so chose, to give it back to him in return. That was the crazy idea that God saw as more important, as better than anything he had ever done. And he did it out of love for you and for me. This Christmas, as we spend time with our family and with our loved ones, as we enjoy good food, as we enjoy presents and just spending time with each other, may we remember why we celebrate this whole holiday in the first place. It's because of God. It's because God loved us so much that he said, if I can just become like them, if I can just become one of them, 
walk among them, speak their language for a little while, then surely they'll understand how much I love them. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for coming to where we are 2,000 years ago into the body of a little baby boy in a manger. Lord, as crazy as that idea was, Lord, we get it. We understand that no matter what you tried to do before, we weren't going to follow you. So you had to come yourself. Lord, forgive us for all those ways that we have rejected you, that we have said no to you throughout our lives. We've tried to do things our own way, even though we have failed ourselves miserably time and time again. Lord God, would you come into our lives? Would you forgive us of all those ways we have fallen short of you, those ways that we have said no, in essence, to you? Lord, we ask that you would come into our hearts that you would fill us with your spirit, forgive us of our sins, and begin to change us from the inside out. Lord, we would ask that through this journey of life, with the time that we have left on this earth, that we would come to know you and your love for what it truly is. That we're not here to do religion, but to build relationship. In Jesus' name. Amen.